San Antonio's red light district has a storied past. In previous episodes, we've talked about how the district boomed in the 19th and 20th centuries and how the vice industry boosted the city's economy before it was shut down in the 1940s. But that was just the official end of the red light district. Sex work still continued. After all, it is the oldest profession. In San Antonio and across the country, sex workers are online, in the streets, and in clubs. A few cities across the country have removed penalties for sellers of consensual sex, meaning a sex worker won't be prosecuted. But Texas recently became the first state where it's a felony to buy services from a consensual worker. State legislators passed this new law claiming it would help curb sex trafficking. How do these changing laws impact the day-to-day lives of sex workers? And where is the line drawn between work and trafficking? I'm Kathleen Creedon. And I'm Bree Kirkham. And this is Running Red Lights, a podcast from Texas Public Radio about the history of sex work in San Antonio. And the women who ran the industry, but who weren't allowed to make history. Before we get started, a quick note about language. Throughout this series, you've heard our sources, and sometimes us, refer to prostitution or people who worked in prostitution as a reflection of the industry in that time period. In this episode, our sources use the legal connotation of the word prostitution to refer to the crime. We will use the term sex work to acknowledge changes in our language, since the modern understanding of the term includes work like camming, stripping, porn work, and so on. This episode also includes descriptions of sex and the violence sex workers face, as well as strong language that might not be suitable for listeners of a certain age. Sex work and popular culture over the years has been romanticized. For example, the 1990 film Pretty Woman, a classic rags-to-riches tale where a wealthy businessman falls in love with a pretty, young, white sex worker played by Julia Roberts. The businessman, played by Richard Gere, brings Roberts into his world, where she's showered with expensive gifts and designer clothes. But in 2021, movies like Zola show the grittier side of sex work. It's based off a viral Twitter thread by Asia Zola King. Zola is a Black woman who in 2015 was working as a waitress and dancing on the side. She's befriended by Stephanie, a white woman in braids using African-American vernacular. The two head to Florida, where Zola thinks they'll make some quick cash stripping. Instead, she's surrounded by sketchy characters as she realizes Stephanie is a full-service sex worker. This might have followed the trend of detective shows and true crime. What was once happy-go-lucky is a bit darker now. Happy-go-lucky is a good descriptor for the 1982 movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, based off the Broadway musical. In the film, Burt Reynolds played the local sheriff. Dolly Parton was the madam of the house, Mona Stangley. Parton's character was lovable, civic-minded, and gave to charity. The house was actually based on a real brothel called Chicken Ranch in LaGrange, about an hour and a half east of San Antonio. Charles Bruton grew up in LaGrange from the 1920s to the early 1940s. The Institute of Texan Cultures interviewed Bruton in 1982 about his recollections of the ranch. And I've got to say that During the whole period of time that we're talking about, I never once heard any preacher get up on a soapbox. I was going to ask you that. Or any politicians get vociferous about it. 
it was it was an accepted thing, and uh, everybody left it alone. Bruton worked as an electrician at the ranch before joining the army. The madam at the time was a woman named Jessie Williams. She was a stickler for keeping things quiet. She did not allow any rowdy, rowdyism. Bruton was interviewed the same year the movie Best Little Whorehouse premiered. And a year before that, in 1981, another brothel was busted in San Antonio. It was run by a woman named Teresa Brown. Rick Casey was a columnist for the San Antonio Express News at the time, and he says she had a pretty exclusive system. Um, it was um, an establishment that catered to heavily into the, the rich and powerful. Uh, you had to be on her list uh, to get in. The only way to get on the list was for somebody on the list to recommend you. And Teresa Brown was familiar with the rich and powerful, that's for sure. She actually had a client list that is rumored to have 3,000 names on it, including powerful political and local figures. Casey says a copy of the list ended up in the hands of a friend of Brown's, who then gave some of the names over to a West Side publication called El Pueblo, which published a few of them. Her brothel was busted years after it first started operating, even though there had never been any issues before that. Some people thought, since it was able to operate for so long, that maybe the police were in on it. My belief is that you can't operate something like that for seven years or however long she'd been doing it uh, without the police eventually knowing about it. Uh, just makes sense. Uh, so, I mean, you think about the neighbors. You know, you've got four young women living there, different four young women every month, uh, because they were on a circuit. Uh, federal law makes it a fairly serious crime to cross state lines, to bring women across, or men or whoever, across state lines for prostitution. Overall, Casey says people were pretty quiet about Brown's business. Even he only learned about the whole operation after it had been busted. Fast forward about four decades, and of course, there are still sex workers in Texas. We spoke with Evie and Olive, two sex workers who started their careers in San Antonio. Both asked us to just use their first names. Evie now lives and works part-time in Austin. The first time Evie exchanged sex for cash, they were 19 years old. They met a photographer. He came off as somebody who was very interested in me and wanted to shoot me and take photos of me. And at the time, I was very interested in modeling. But I was also very uncomfortable by this man because I just I just knew that he had other intentions. But I... I didn't really know how to stand up for myself at the time or speak for myself. Evie said they were initially super against the idea of exchanging sex for money, that they just didn't feel right. But this photographer kept Snapchatting and texting them to the point where they just wanted to get rid of him. And I was just so fed up at this point. I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. You know, it is what it is. I have no money. I need the money. You know, um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get it over with, and maybe he'll leave me alone. And I remember going home, and the first thing I did was buy myself a Whataburger meal because that was the first thing I could buy for myself in so long. And I just remember sitting in that parking lot, just thinking about the decision I made. And even though I was, I felt so wrong about it, it felt so right at the end because I got something out of it, and I was able to eat that night. 
A year and a half later, in early 2017, Evie was waiting tables in Texas to try to pay the bills and put money toward college. But they needed the extra income, so they turned to sex work. They were also living with a partner at the time and helping him pay his bills. You know, just so many other expenses were piling on it from him. And he wasn't really trying. And I was just so in love with him. I just didn't want to lose him because I, my whole life I just would lose so many people and I just didn't want to lose him. Evie now lives in an apartment alone. They're very careful about clients. They worry about being arrested and they worry for their safety. They conduct a thorough screening process, require a 20% deposit up front, proof of a LinkedIn account or other social media, and a questionnaire. I also ask for references if they have any. None of these precautions ensure a sex worker's safety, though. I always keep a hammer under my bed. I always keep a knife by my pillow. Olive, who you just heard, is another sex worker who started off in San Antonio. She's a trans woman of color, and her story is similar to Abby's. Both had bills to pay, including rent. Before sex work, Olive was working as a hairstylist. Then I realized that, like, I suck at working for other people. Um, so, like, I quit. But then I realized, oh, shit, I don't have any money <laughs> now that I quit doing hair. So um, I had some friends that were also whores, and... They put me on to, like, my first sessions, and I've been doing sex work since. Now, she considers herself a career sex worker, as in she's not just doing it to make ends meet. The money isn't just going to rent or to bills. Career sex workers can choose to save and to invest in their brand. Yeah, and she told us that the shift from survival work to career work has really given her a sort of agency that she didn't have before. And she says she feels privileged to choose. Whenever I was doing survival sex work, I wasn't able to pick and choose. I didn't have the luxury to choose who my clients were. I didn't have the luxury to choose what I was, what I was getting paid. I didn't have a luxury of safety in a space that belonged to me. Um, whereas now that I'm doing career sex work, I have those luxuries. I can choose what I want to pay. I can choose who I want to see. You know, I can choose who I want to invite into a space that I'm in. But even though she's able to pick and choose her clients, there still is a sense of danger to the job. When she was working in San Antonio, she wouldn't even call the police if, say, a client was harassing her, even if it wasn't during a client call. This one client got really obsessive with me, and um, he wound up at my apartment. He was just parked outside my apartment for, like, hours at a time. So I actually had to call my friend who had a gun and I had to be like, hey, can you like come here and like scare this guy off for me? And he did. He came, he like pulled out his gun and wouldn't pull it out. He didn't like, you know, but um, he just like showed him his gun. The guy, the guy drove away. Um, So that was really scary. Olive and Evie don't live full time in Texas anymore. And there's a reason for that. We'll talk more after this break. Immigration. I think we need to all get in before the wall goes up. 
health. The promotora, they have all the resources that can get them the help that they need. Art. There's this kind of subversiveness to it, right? We cover all these topics and more on Fronteras as we examine issues along the border and beyond. I'm Norma Martinez. Download Fronteras where you find your favorite podcasts. Selling sex is a crime in most of the country. There are a few counties in Nevada where it is legal, not just partially decriminalized. Charges for prostitution have been dwindling in New York City for a decade. In April 2021, the city formally decriminalized sex work for those selling sex. Before the break, we introduced you to Olive, who moved to New York about a year ago, where she says she can charge what she's worth. I can actually charge, like, prices that I'm comfortable with, and it's fine. Like, they're almost used to it. In San Antonio, they'll, like, haggle the fuck out of me and, like, you know, try to, like, put a price on what I should be charging and stuff. New York joined other cities, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Ann Arbor, and San Francisco, that show leniency towards sex workers. And that makes Olive feel a little safer. But she still sleeps with a knife by her pillow. Meanwhile, here in Texas, just last September, the state moved to make buying sex a felony. That means stiffer jail sentences and possibly losing the right to vote and to own firearms. Here's a press release from Attorney General Ken Paxton on House Bill 1540. He says, quote, Texas is the first in the country to punish sex buyers with felonies, which is a substantial step towards curbing the demand for commercial sex. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery targeting vulnerable men, women, and children in our communities. End quote. Paxton doesn't distinguish between sex work and sex trafficking here. Sex work is consensual and is sometimes called free sex work, meaning one is working under their own free will. Sex trafficking happens when someone is forced, coerced, or even blackmailed into it. And children, of course, cannot consent to sex. So there's no such thing legally as a child sex worker. They're victims. So we were confused by this new Texas law. We wanted to understand how this will help trafficking victims and find out if the law might also protect sellers of consensual sex. TPR reached out to lawmakers who sponsored the bill from both parties. They declined interviews. So did the Attorney General's Human Trafficking Prevention Task Force, which organized the omnibus bill. Kirsta Mountain used to work for the AG's office. She helped investigate and prosecute trafficking cases with district attorneys across Texas. She now has her own nonprofit called the Institute to Combat Trafficking. She's doing similar work, investigating and prosecuting cases, along with helping cities and companies assess their own risks and plan for prevention. She explains the strategy to go after buyers. You might say, well, that just seems to be addressing solely the buyers um, related to prostitution. Because it is unclear, right, how many individuals are engaging in prostitution uh, voluntarily, meaning choosing to commit that crime without the influence of a third party or forced fraud or coercion. It's really hard, right, for law enforcement. And because these victims are not coming forward and identifying themselves as trafficking victims, it's hard to distinguish whether you have a buyer who is purchasing a trafficked person or whether you have a buyer who is buying someone who has chosen as an adult to engage in the crime of prostitution. Either way, right, that buyer group 
is largely indiscriminate. And so the idea is that if you increase their penalties, give them a more significant deterrent to purchasing, that you're going to reduce the people who are purchasing across the board, which means you're going to reduce the demand for sex trafficked people at the same time, right, that you are in theory reducing the demand for prostitution, period. Melton thinks the law will help, but only if buyers are indicted, not just arrested. Others aren't even sure that will help. Kathleen Kim is a law professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. She focuses on immigrant and workplace rights. There is no evidence that demonstrates that uh, criminalizing demand provides enough of a deterrent to prevent human trafficking. From what I've seen, the more resources that go into a law enforcement approach, a a carceral approach to sex trafficking, um, the more harm that's done across the board for, for both sex trafficking victims and free sex workers. Kim uses this example. Let's say law enforcement officers surveil a massage parlor or a brothel in Texas. They can arrest everyone. That is how they're going to continue their investigation. Um, they're going to arrest everyone, and then um, and then one by one, each of those um, each of the workers that they've arrested, law enforcement um, might engage in an interview process to determine who they think is has been trafficked or not. Kim says this could continue the cycle of abuse for trafficking victims because law enforcement might coerce them into testifying against buyers in court, and that could re-traumatize them. Also, they might be retaliated against when buyers get out of jail. Barbara Brentz is a professor at the University of Nevada. She's studied the sex industry for more than 20 years and believes politicians need to find ways to offer more safety nets instead of increasing criminalization. We're already at a spot, I think, in our country where we're recognizing that police are increasingly... being asked to deal with social services for marginalized people, and they're just, that's not their job. Brent says the most affected are groups like LGBTQ plus communities who have fewer support systems. And by the time they might get help, it's often too late. They turn to sex work because that's the only way they can make an income. And what are we doing? We're both criminalizing them, criminalizing their clients, and then providing those social services Brent says people in these communities need to be a part of the solution because they understand it. The National Group Sex Workers Outreach Project, or SWAP, has local chapters that aim to decriminalize sex work and end violence by offering education and advocacy. And as far as the Texas law making it now a felony to buy sex, it's still too early to tell what impact it might have on the industry and whom it will protect. We've talked a lot about how sex work and sex trafficking are often conflated especially when it comes to laws like HB 1540. But the two are not the same. Sex work is consensual, and for many sex workers, it's a means of survival. Evie and Olive both started in sex work for survival, but now they're in it for the agency and the security it provides. Some girls want to do sex work, you know, like it's not, it's something that shouldn't be taboo anymore. It's something that shouldn't be seen as a last resort. It's not something that should be seen as dirty. You know, like, a lot of these girls out here view themselves and view, we view ourselves as professionals. You know what I mean? Just like as you would as any other line of work. Honestly, at the end of the day, it's all survival. 
You can paint it any lens you want. You can look at it through the rose-colored lens, but the job is a job and we have to do it to survive. You know, some people just have to take greater lengths than others, you know. Those greater lengths that Evie just mentioned are often dangerous. Somewhere between 45 and 75 percent of sex workers have experienced workplace violence, according to a 2012 study published by the National Library of Medicine. Sex workers are at high risk, and the more consensual sex work is conflated with sex trafficking, the more complicated it becomes. Perhaps it's the stigma of sex work that makes sex workers afraid to report violence and makes non-sex workers unwilling to protect them. It also might be why sex workers can't celebrate their victories. The negative aspects of sex work dominate the conversation, primarily because it's illegal. In earlier episodes, we talked about madams at the turn of the 20th century, Emilia Garza and Mary Valino, who found agency in legal sex work. Fanny Porter and Teresa Brown are remembered for their careers, even if it's more notoriety than fame. For Evie and Olive, and maybe even Amelia, Mary, Fanny, and Teresa, sex work is more than just an income. It's a source of empowerment. Evie puts it simply. Sex work really taught me how to find my self-worth and how not to be afraid to ask for more. And that brings us to the end, for now. But just as sex work continued after San Antonio's red light district shut down in the 1940s, it will continue despite new laws and policies put into place. It is, after all, the oldest profession. I'm Kathleen Creedon. And I'm Bree Kirkham. Michaela Montoya-Frazier worked as a consultant on this episode. Thank you again to the San Antonio Public Library and the Bear County Spanish Archives. Editing and production from Dallas Williams. Our graphic was designed by Rob Martinez. Sound design from Jacob Rosati. Our theme song is Mujer Moderna by the band Fea. Dan Katz is our news director. Find transcripts, episodes, and additional reporting on the Red Light District, 503 Urban Loop, and House Bill 1540 at tpr.org slash rrl.